we are uh, we find ourselves in week three of this summer series called Psalms for the Summer. Summer series Psalms for the Summer. Say that ten times fast. Uh, good luck. Uh, so in the first week we checked out um, a, what we're doing is in this Psalms for the Summer series we're looking at different genres or styles of psalms each week to, just to kind of get a sample uh, for what different things are in there and how maybe we can approach these psalms. So in week one we looked at Psalm one and that's called a wisdom psalm. Kind of lays out. It's kind of like a proverb. So we read it as great advice, godly advice on how to live. Uh, last week we looked at Psalm 22, which is a lament psalm. Uh, gives us permission to grieve. Gives us permission to be confused and angry. And also gives us hope uh, that the living God is not only good, but He is faithful uh, to do the best thing in the end. And today we're going to look at Psalm 95, which is known as a hymn, uh, more specifically a royal hymn, a hymn of praise, and quite frankly, Psalm 95 is, the best way to describe it is, it is a call to worship. It's a call to get off our behinds and to worship the living God. Uh, A few years ago, I went on a camping trip, and I was uh, with a bunch of people, but there was one older guy there who... um, uh, Let's just say he wasn't living a a very godly lifestyle. And um, one night, we're sitting out under the stars, just me and this guy. He's an older guy. And, you know, it's just silence. I mean, it's one of these views. We're at a lake, and the moon is almost full. It's behind the tree line, and it's casting these beautiful shadows onto the water. And you look up, and the stars are just brilliant, almost as bright as I remember being way out at at sea in the Coast Guard. And... um, and I hear in a shaky voice, this is a big gruff guy, but he, he starts speaking to me in a shaky voice and he goes, you know, I, I know I, I'm, I don't live a very great life and I know I don't have great faith like you, which by the way, I hate it when people say that as if, because I'm a pastor, faith is easy or something. Anyway, uh, I, I, I know I'm not living a great life and I know I don't have great faith. But when you look at those stars, he says, how can you not think there's something else out there? How can you not think there's someone else out there who did this? Well, he had a very common reaction. Anthropologists around the world have yet to discover a people group that don't in some way worship someone or something. Worship seems to be a universal trait among human beings. We're all kind of on the hunt for the transcendent, for some meaning beyond what we can see and touch and feel. Even evolutionary biologists have a really difficult time explaining, okay, if we're all just a series of natural selection, uh, they have a really hard time explaining what is, what good does it do anybody to worship some other object or some other thing that they can't see and get any tangible benefit from. Now, our worship takes all kinds of different forms and styles, and the object of worship changes from group to group and person to person. And Christianity, which, you know, you're in a church, so we're going to talk about Christianity, uh, upholds the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is alone worthy of our worship, okay? So if we know that much about worship, you know, you came here because you probably guessed you were going to worship God, and you guessed that the preacher was going to talk about God. Why do we need to hear a worship psalm about worshiping? Why don't we just worship? Well, 
just because we're all wired to worship and want to do it doesn't mean we'll always do it very well. See, the uh, eminent philosopher and theologian, well, kind of theological philosopher, Blaise Pascal, he's also a mathematician, said there is a God-shaped vacuum at the center of every human heart, right? There's a God-shaped vacuum at the center of every human heart. His idea was that every person, no matter who they are, are always looking to fill this hole in their heart that can only be filled by the living God. So, all people, whether whether they know it or not, are looking for God to worship Him, to be fulfilled. But the problem is, is that there's a sin problem, right? And we all want to fill that hole, but we want it instantly. We want the instant gratification. We want to fill that hole without really being responsible to anyone or uh, to have a king over us. And so... We feed things like our lusts and our self-interest and our pride. We worship sometimes our careers, right? We can worship our families. We can worship our bodies. We can worship our minds. If I just knew more, we can worship the creation, politicians. We can even worship sports. In fact, I spent about an hour today looking up different soccer teams. Okay, this is a little confession. Psalm 95 is a call to worship. But beyond that, it gives us instruction on how to worship and most of all, whom to worship and how, uh, how worship of, of anything else is misguided and dangerous. So, I'm going to read Psalm 95. Would you please stand with me? O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving, and let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God, and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks, the peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it was He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as in the days of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they'd seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, There are people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, Truly, they shall not enter into my rest. Father, thank you for calling us to worship, for giving us some instructions, some guidelines on how we could do it to please you. And then there's this warning at the end that frankly freaks me out a little bit, Father. It, uh, it shows us that worship can be dangerous depending on how we respond to it. So I pray that you would soften our hearts this evening and help us not only to receive this word in our heads, but to listen and obey as well. Amen. You may be seated.
Psalm 95 is organized into five fairly neat sections, at least according to my study of it. <laughs> varies depending on who's doing the study. Uh, but the first section you could call verses 1 and 2, and I call it kind of the what section. What is this psalm, Psalm 95? What's it trying to tell us? What's God trying to do in Psalm 95? Well, first of all, we're called to come together. The word come is in the plural. Come, let us sing. Let us shout. Let us come before Him. Now, granted, worship can be a personal event. In fact, we're called to make our entire life, living, every living, breathing, waking moment, worship. Okay? This psalm, just keep in mind, is not a systematic theology on everything you can know about worship. It is in the Psalms, which is the community worship book of the people of God. So it has a very particular bent. This is what we do when we come together as the people of God to worship. So Psalm 95 is about worshiping God in the family of God. Come. Come. It's not an option. Worship with the family of God might be only one way to worship, but it's a non-negotiable way to worship. Does that make sense? It's only one way to worship. You can worship by yourself sometimes, and you can, you know, what you do at your job can be worship. And coming together as the community worship is one way to worship, but it's a non-negotiable way to worship. There are, in Scripture, never upheld any Lone Ranger Christians. Anyone who says, hey, oh, I just got Jesus, but I don't need the church, or I don't need to gather with other people, needs, needs some correction, according to Psalm 95 and a vast amount of Scripture. And the call to come together isn't simply just to come and to hold hands or to come and to sit, but it's a come to do something, a call to worship, a call to do something. See, somewhere along the line, many Christians have turned worship into a passive event. Worship is often seen, seen or defined as the music. We have worship bands that perform while everyone else is an audience in a sea of amplified sound. You ever been to a, a worship service where it, it's like a concert, there's even disco balls, and, and you just sit there and receive, okay? We walk out of the church and say, I really liked that worship. Or, I didn't like that sermon, it was too long. Or, I didn't get fed. Or, I loved the worship because I felt tingly on that one song. You know what I mean? Now, Daryl Johnson, a professor up at Regent, was very helpful for me in, in, in giving an analogy. And he drew on Soren Kierkegaard's analogy of the theater and the church. Okay? Soren Kierkegaard said that in the theater and in Christian worship, there is an audience. Right? And, and he's speaking of the play theater. So at a play, at the theater, who's the audience? We're the audience. There are actors who are the performers, and you're the audience. But in Christian worship, the audience is the living God. The audience is the living God. In the theater and in worship, Christian worship, there are performers. In theater, it's the actors and actresses, right? And in worship, the performers are you in the pew. In the theater and in Christian worship, there are prompters. 
right? At the theater, there are people who have signs if you forget your line or people that kind of do the sets and, and make the transitions. They help the actors. They support the actors, the performers, okay? In Christian worship, there are, there are prompters as well. This evening, Brian and Nikki and Jackie were the prompters, helping lead God's choir into worship for the audience. I'm a prompter. I put together that call to worship to help us get the scriptures into our mind, to put our mind and our heart in a place to worship God. I'm prompting us to worship together. Okay, so you're not the audience, and I'm not the audience. We are the prompters and the performers for the audience, the living God. I like that. I like what Kierkegaard has done there. Kierkegaard missed it on one point, and again, I'm stealing this from Daryl Johnson. Daryl Johnson adds that the ultimate prompter is not the pastor, or it's not the worship team, and it's not anybody else here. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prompts us to be here. The Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to even want to worship God. Okay? And hopefully the Holy Spirit is guiding me in what I'm saying. Right? So the church is guided by these prompters and by tradition, uh, mostly by the Holy Spirit, to participate in gathering and praying and reading Scripture and receiving Scripture, which, as we'll find out, is not passive either. What you're doing right now, just a warning, it's dangerous. By listening to me, it's dangerous. Not because I'm heretical, but because you're responsible. We're responsible for what we hear and know. So even listening to the Word of God is not passive. Okay? The psalmist in Psalm 95 calls us to sing and to shout, which really means to, to cry out and to declare who God is. And in the second line of verse 2, many translation re translations read something like, Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. And the Hebrew word behind that translation for psalms is literally singing with a musical accompaniment. Singing with musical accompaniment. So this psalm is telling us to use musical instruments. It doesn't mean if you have an a cappella service or something like you're not doing it right. I'm just saying you can use musical instruments. And Psalm 95 doesn't really give us a, an outline for what instruments are used. But when you look throughout all the psalms, we have some ideas such as trumpets and harps and lyres and tambourines and strings and flutes and cymbals. And this list that I'm putting together is simply these are the types of instruments that Israel had to worship with, right? Psalm 95 doesn't give us a prescription. It doesn't say you have to use these things and you can't use anything else. The important thing to remember is that these are in instruments that meant something in Israel's context. All right? That means that it doesn't mean we can't use organs or pianos or guitars because they weren't around back then. Our expression of worship, whether in song or liturgy or preaching, has to fit the people doing the worshiping. It has to fit us, right? That's why when you go to, to different local churches, you have a different feel, a different style. There's different ensembles. God assembles each local church. He puts the players together. He puts the performers together. Okay, I believe that. I believe that. So instead of saying, oh man, I wish we had a choir director and a choral ensemble every week, which that would be awesome. We don't have that. But we, we have something else that God's brought together. Right? We've got people that can play piano. 
and sing and play guitar and djembe and congas and cello and trumpet and I'm missing a lot but there's pretty cool stuff that you guys can do <laughs> that I can't do and God's called our community together to be able to express ourselves in that way okay God's not upset that we're missing some some instrument that doesn't exist here right now he builds the church your pastor I have a style of preaching Okay, this is this is how I, I, I preach. Uh, I'm not going to pretend I'm someone I'm not. I'm not going to start jumping up and down and slicking my hair back and whitening my teeth because somebody in a different context does that and they're successful. Right, so we just have to be who we are. Worship God with the things that He's given us. Besides, the true heart of worship is never, never, never the style. It's our love for the person we're worshiping. Okay? The psalmist says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Come before His presence. Literally, that word presence is in Hebrew, panim. And it means His face. Come before His face with thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to Him with songs and instrumental accompaniment, if you want to get literal. We are to bring our joy and thanksgiving to God. Now, how many walked in this evening just full of joy, amped to worship God? Now, I hope some of you. But let's face it. Let's face it. Most of us either have stuff going on in our life that is kind of preoccupying or, you know, maybe, probably we're just pretty self-centered and we're thinking about all the stuff we wish was better in our life. All the stuff we wish God would do or obsessing about the things that He hasn't done. And we tend to focus on negative things. That's precisely, listen, that's precisely why Psalm 95 and others like it exist. We need help. We need reminders that we're supposed to get together and worship. That's why we have a call to worship. That's why we sing songs that remind us of God's character and goodness. And that's why we have section 2, verses 3 through 5. They tell us why we should worship. This God of ours, He's our Creator. You see the poetic, uh, the poetic language in these lines. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand, poetry, does God have hands? thought He was spirit, right? So this is poetic. In whose hand are the depths of the earth? Think lowest spot. Think that really bad movie, The Core. God can even get down there. And, and with the other hand, the highest mountaintops. He created the seas spoke the land into existence too. This is a statement not about exactly where God's hands are right now. It's a statement of scope. That our God not only created every nook and cranny, everything you can imagine on the earth, but He's King of it. And you know what that's for in Psalm 95? To blow our minds. To remind us why we come together, why we should sing with joy. Why it is He's worthy of our praise? In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller quotes the scientist Francis Collins, who wrote this, We have this very solid conclusion that the universe has an origin, the Big Bang. 
Okay, almost every university, you know, it's pretty much settled that at some point there's this big bang. Whether you believe it or not, this is what Collins is saying he thinks happened. Fifteen billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of energy from an infinitesimally small point. And that implies that before that, there was nothing. I can't imagine how nature, in this case, the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that that had to be outside of nature. Keller goes on to say, there is one, there is a one in a trillion trillion chance that that explosion however many billion years ago, could have created the life planet Earth that could, that could support life like it does. One in a one trillion trillion chance. That's this God who created all these things. As people in Bellingham, you know, I think we get spoiled with uh, where we live. I wrote this sermon while sitting in my upstairs window looking out the window at the San Juan Islands. Sun gently beating into the window, not too hot, not too cold, right? You can go hike Skyline Divide in the morning and come worship here at Lettered Streets in the evening. We have an event called Ski to Sea. I mean, doesn't that just say it all? You can do all those things in like one day. That's awesome. We live in this beautiful, amazing place. Our God made this place. And so the psalmist is telling us to consider the works of God's hands and to thank Him and to give Him joy to give Him our worship. But, there's another way that we can read these poetic lines. And a way that ancient Israel certainly read these lines. You see, in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, their cosmology um, was very different than ours today. Israel, ancient Israel, was one of the only, probably the only nation to have monotheism, to believe in one God. Their surrounding neighbors believed in a multiplicity of gods. You know what some of those gods were? The gods of the deepest part of the earth in Hades. And on mountaintops, you would often find many gods worshipped. There was a god of the sea, which is chaos, and a god of land, Marduk and Tiamat. Tiamat, the chaos god, was defeated by Marduk in the Babylonian myth. And out of Tiamat's body, out of Tiamat's guts, Marduk created the earth and created people to be slaves of the gods. Okay? And so this is uh, an interesting line in the Psalms because all of Israel's neighbors would have read these lines and said, Wow, what a claim. You're claiming that there's one God and that he created these things that we call gods. It's awesome. So by saying the Lord, or Yahweh, is a great God and a great king above all gods, means he's superior, and that those other things are imposters. Right? So when Israel's getting together for worship and singing this psalm, those are fighting words from all their neighbors. And that's another reason why Jesus walking on water and calming the sea with a voice is so significant. Only God can do those things. Walk on the water, speak to it, and cause it to be calm. 
So we're called to worship Yahweh because he alone created and rules every corner of the world. And in verse 6, which is the third section of the psalm, the psalmist once again calls us to worship. And now he says, bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And again, the call is in the plural. Y'all come together, come and worship. And here again, he calls us to do something. And here it's kneel and bow down. And it's easy to get caught up in the specifics of this psalm and to, see, and to say, okay, this psalm is telling us that when we get together, we need to kneel and bow down. Well, kneeling and bowing down is completely an, an, an appropriate way to worship. If you want to kneel and bow down, that's a-okay. This is not about specifically kneeling and bowing down as much as it is a word of reverence. A word of reverence. We're to come before God with reverence. So in light of this God who created all the world as we know it and rules over all the world as we know it, we're to respect Him. In fact, the Psalms call us to come before His presence, right? And remember I said His presence is actually His face, His panim. Now what's on the front of your panim? What's this? Everyone, touch your nose and say, off. Off. That's the Hebrew word for nose, off. It's where we get the idea of awful. or ter- And I don't mean awful tasting, but awful, fearfully Terrible. When God is angry, in literally in Hebrew, we always translate it as um, you know God was angry or His anger, this or that. Oftentimes, it talks about His off flaring in the nostrils. So it's this it's real earthy language here, and we're to come before God's panim, His presence, where His off is. We're to be very reverential. You know, I think. It, and sometimes in our history, we've gone too far and made God this mean-sounding guy that you just can't even relate to at all. And so we've rightfully, I think, done a good shift in showing that God is our Father and God is approachable and all of those things are true. But sometimes I feel like we've gone way over to the other side and now God is this like grandpa type figure that we just snuggle up to all the time and we give high fives to when we come into worship. And I think that Psalm 95 helps swing this pendulum back to the middle. And it reminds us that yes, our God is approachable, And yes, He's a loving Father, but at the same time, He is the living God of the universe. And we're to come before Him with some reverence and some respect. In Israel's day, and in many forms, it's uh, customary to kneel and bow down, and those would be signs of reverence. What's reverential in our context? I know one. It's not a dig at anyone in particular. Being on time. Being on time is a sign of reverence and respect. Um, your boss would probably be upset if you kept coming in late to work, right? It's, it's disrespectful, it's wasteful of time, all these things. So coming on time to worship is a sign of respect. Sometimes we uh, bow our heads or we close our eyes in prayer or sometimes when we're singing. Um, we have appropriate times of silence. All of these types of things can show reverence or respect to the living God. 
See, worship is a mixture of joy and reverence. And it's in the fourth section, verse 7a, where the psalmist reminds us of why we can be joyful in the presence of this awful, in the best sense of the term, God. Why can we come with joy in front of this, really this incredibly awesome and powerful God? One reason, because He is our God. We're the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hands. It's not so much equating God with the dirty shepherd and us with idiotic sheep, as it is um, a kind of endearing metaphor of someone who is caring after, caring after a group of people who, let's face it, we don't care for ourselves very well, especially in the spiritual life. Right? We need guidance. We need help. It, it, it's, a, it's a picture of a shepherd who sustains and protects and leads well and leads to water and to all the things that we need. God is worthy of our praise, of our worship, because He is the Good Shepherd. And of course, you can't help read that from our perspective and not think of Jesus, right? Since we have the benefit of reading Psalm 95 after the resurrection, Jesus called Himself the Good Shepherd, the term for God. He laid down His life for the sheep, for all who would trust and obey His voice. The Good Shepherd died that we could live, and that's good news. That's why He's worthy of worship. Now, in the fifth and final section of this psalm, we appear to take a really drastic course change. Listen. All this talk about coming and gathering and how great God is. And then, today if you'd hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when you, your fathers tested me and they tried me, though they'd seen my works. And it goes on. At first it seems like, is this added to the psalm later? Is this, does this belong here? I think it absolutely belongs here. Here's, here's how it went down. The people were slaves in Egypt. God delivers them. You know the story. He takes them out, gives the ten plagues on, on Pharaoh, and the people come out of Egypt. He splits the Red Sea. They go out in the wilderness, and God is with them in the, the pillar of smoke and fire. His presence is with the people. And then they get to this place called Horeb, and they start to complain. And they nearly stone Moses, who's the appointed, God-appointed leader. And they're so afraid that this God who delivered them is going to let them die of thirst. And so God tells Moses, hey, take your staff, hit the rock, and all this water starts gushing out. But then God renames this place. He doesn't call it Horeb anymore. He doesn't let them remember it that way in their history. He makes them change the name to Massah, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. And that generation of people that he rescued never made it into what they would consider their salvation, their rest in the promised land. They never made it there. Now, hundreds of years after these psalms were written, there was a group of early Christians. They were converted from Judaism. They put their faith in Jesus. They made a commitment to follow Christ alone. They said, your grace is sufficient for me. But as time went on, they began to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus for them. And they started to revert back into following the Old Testament law a little bit and wanting to follow Jesus a little bit, but their commitment was waning. You know who those people were? 
were, were the ones that the Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews wrote to. And the writer of Hebrews um, writes specifically about this in, in two verses. Hebrews 3, which Patrick just read, and Hebrews 4. Do you know what they quote in those chapters? Psalm 95. Four times Psalm 95 is quoted in Hebrews 3 and 4. The writer of Hebrews, like the psalmist, is warning us that worship is dangerous. You probably never thought that when you came to church before. Worship is dangerous. Here's why. We're responsible for what we know. We're responsible for what we know. When we experience God in worship, when we hear His voice, or when the Spirit convicts us through a sermon, or when the Spirit encourages us to do something for another, we have a choice to make. What are we going to do with that information, or with that conviction, or with that calling? And every time we ignore Jesus' claim over our life, His claim over the way we treat others, his claim over how we spend our time and our money and our talents. His claim over our sexual lives, over our business ethics, and the list goes on. When we harden our hearts toward Him, something happens. We become numb, more and more numb. Until, you know what? We stop hearing His voice. We stop feeling guilty anymore. We stop seeing that there's anything wrong with not following Jesus. God once said to the prophet Isaiah, These people honor, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Here's why that's important. Worship is not about singing and bowing down and listening. Not primarily. Worship is about obedience. Everything else is lip service if we don't have obedience. We're giving lip service to God. If we're giving lip service to God, then you know what? We're giving our worship to someone or something else. And that means we're not trusting Jesus anymore for new life. So the message of worship is a message of life and death. The writer of Hebrews warns us, Take care, brothers and sisters, that there be not any one of you in an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another, day after day, as long as it can still be called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've become partakers in Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance until the end. You know what the good news is? It's still today. It's not too late. Today. I suspect there's at least two camps represented in this congregation. I'm in one of them too. For those who have made a commitment to follow Jesus at some point in our lives, maybe we've been hardening our heart on certain fronts. Right? Now is today an opportunity to come back and to repent and to ask that we be soft again and that we would hear His voice again and have grace to obey. And then there's another camp, maybe. Uh, maybe there's those of you who have never really made a commitment to follow Jesus. And the, the truth is that it is still today that Jesus is here with open arms. He's inviting everyone to come and renounce our rebellion and to trust Him for new life.
So I don't know what camp you're in. Maybe you're in a third camp. You can make one up. But if you're in one of those, um, do you join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much for your graciousness in giving us this word. It's really odd to me in a way that I can't even worship you without your help. That after all you've done, creating me, putting us in this incredible environment, sustaining us, giving us life, dying for us, offering us new life and eternal life, after all of that, it's amazing to me that I still need help. I still need Psalm 95s in my life. Reminders to come and to worship. Reminders of your character and your goodness. And warnings of what will happen if I let my heart get hard. Father, for those of us who uh, have been rebelling, who have made a commitment to follow you, but may be reluctant to give up certain things or to trust you in certain areas. Lord, maybe we're here this evening finding parts of our hearts numb to you. Well, it's scary. hear you. We want to be sensitive to you. We want to have the courage to obey. I pray that you would do that work in us, Lord. We repent. Pray that you would restore our hearts to, uh, to softness and freshness. And Lord, for those who uh, have not yet wanted to, to follow you, not yet found themselves able to follow you, Thank you that it's still today, that there's still opportunity. Would you receive those, Lord, who are putting their faith in you today for the first time? Who turn away from a life of rebellion and ask for help to follow you? you for your forgiveness and that you've not left us alone to give your spirit to guide in your community to encourage.